0: Everyone, welcome back to another episode of Bet on Chicago. My name is Joy Christopoulos. Today's episode is brought to you by BetOnline.ag. And look, if you're into sports betting, BetOnline is where you should go to win money today. Whether it's live bets during games or futures for who you think will win the next championship, BetOnline has all the latest odds, news, and information for all your online sports betting needs. So what are you waiting for? Visit the website today, or use your mobile device to join and receive a 50% welcome bonus on your first deposit. So before the next big game, head on over to BetOnline and start playing today. BetOnline, your online sportsbook experts. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you so much for coming into the pod. I am so excited to talk to this guest. It's been a long time since I've seen him and talked to him, but we might go down memory lane a little bit and talk about some sports too as well. He is my former high school uh, classmate, my former advisory room classmate, but also you might know him from his wonderful work as a comedian performer through UCB, Pangea 3000, Two Fun Men, and oh yeah, Lanya 2002... Uh, the guy who came up with business package policy, and also a former writer and performer who's done so many hilarious characters on The Tonight Show. It's Arthur Meyer. Hello, Arthur. Hello,
1: Joey. Thank you so much for being here. You know, I, it just occurs to me now. You you go by Joey. Or-
0: I go yeah. <laughs> I go by Joey now. I never went, I never changed it to Joe. I never go
1: in short. That's awesome. You 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 definitely are more of a Joey than a Joe or a Joseph.
0: Oh, thank you for saying that. I also yeah. learned that my father as a sacrifice. When I was born, um, he was a Joey his whole life. Cause you know, when sometimes you're around your elders and they get around their contemporaries, their cousins and stuff, they start calling people by different names. He was Joey his whole life. When he had me, he got rid of Joey and switched to Joe, which I thought was a nice, that was a nice move. that was kind that of a nice move. It's a nice little trade. Um, we're talking to you from park slope, New, York, uh, Brooklyn. Yep. <laughs> Brooklyn, that's right.
1: It's been yeah. probably, think when the last time is that we would have seen each other did you go to our high school's 10-year reunion did did we see each other there did you You were there okay no yeah actually not only not only did i go to our year uh but i went to the two reunions the years before that so like i was on facebook and i saw the event listed it was like nutria class of 2000 uh high school reunion and i was like (laughs) i'm like i wonder if i could buy tickets to that um and it turns out that just anyone can buy tickets to the reunion. So I went to the high school reunion for the class of 2000, 2001, and 2002. And when I was there in 2000 and 2001, I had people come up to me both years. And they, they're like, because I knew, you know, everyone knows some people in the year or two ahead of you. And They were like, Arthur? And I go, hey, what's up? And they're like, weren't you, like, two years younger? And I go, yeah. They're like, why are you here? I'm like, I don't know. Just like, just
0: came. I just like hanging with the older kids. Uh, and yeah. I'm also, you know, just working through, uh, you know, one of my bully issues and I'm, lo- <laughs> I'm going to knock him down. <laughs> no, I didn't go to the 10 year man, but that is really funny to go to the years that you weren't involved in and uh and kind of mix it up a little bit i find that to be a fun move i am thinking about the 20 though i'm thinking about yeah. what
1: do you think do you think are you leaning towards going
0: i'm leaning towards going i did hear that the tenure for ours was a total shit show am i right or am i wrong i heard things happen people showed up too drunk before the event even began but maybe these are just stories that i'm hearing anecdotally
1: that is all true but also based on my experience having gone to three reunions in a row I could say that that's pretty much how it goes every year like basically it follows the same pattern people show up most people are not yet drunk when they show up I'm sure there are some who are but for about the first 45 minutes everyone's really nervous everyone's the same type of nervous too you know like I haven't seen these people in 10 years like a lot of the the high school insecurities are coming back but then once people get enough alcohol in them everyone just kind of has a great time you know <laughs> and that's that is what happened all three years in a row including our year which was crazy i
0: really enjoy that you have a perspective on it too there's a bit of a kind yeah. of thing of like you know, this is what was different from 2000 the 2001 group great great people but that 2002 class like holy shit, like watch out for them a little bit exactly I, I do you like that a whole lot well this is going to kind of maybe feel like that at first because i do want the listeners to we know each other and I'm familiar with your story and your success. And I'm so happy that not only have I known you and like got to work with you, we did have mice and men together in high school, my friend. Um,
1: yes. And a lot, yes, we did.
0: Can you kind of walk uh, the listeners kind of through just a little bit of your journey of growing up, you know, in the North shore, in our neighborhood, going through new Trier and just working your way through the comedy scene through New York and ending up on the tonight show.
1: Yes. Well, so yeah, I was obsessed with comedy from a, a pretty young age. I, when I was, 11 i forced my sisters to do a weekly sketch comedy show in our living room in front of my parents every week called meyer kids night uh which my mom really enjoyed my dad did not like it or find it funny MKN. (laughs) mkn yeah uh we even had like a news segment in there um and then yeah my interest in comedy turned in yeah turned into an obsession I got really into Saturday Night Live, which I, I think most people who knew me in high school maybe remember that. But I, I was so obsessed that I would memorize the dates of all the episodes. So if you were like Sharon Stone, I'd be like April 11th, 1992, Musical Guest Pearl Jam. Like It was, it was truly a sickness. But yeah, you, you and I were in the same advisory or for some people who might know it as homeroom, uh, we were in the same, uh, advisory for all four years of high school. And we were lucky enough to go to this high school that had, um, not only a really good theater department, but had various comedy opportunities too. So there I think an improv group started my sophomore year. There was a radio station and my friend David and I, David Pratt, we did a, uh, sketch comedy show and then the most exciting thing of all for me was doing Po Pri, which was the student run sketch comedy, kind of like music dance show, um, which I auditioned for my freshman and sophomore year. I did not get in. I tried to be a writer. My junior year did not get on the writing staff. And then my senior year, I went for head writer and I got, <laughs> got head it. writer. Yeah. yeah. And I remember actually, so you and I were in the same theater class our junior year of high school. And that was when we did the scene from Of Mice and Men with you playing Lenny and I was George. And and I remember thinking you were you were like, I mean, I, lo- I love you in that class, but it was really fun to be in that uh, bit with you. And also, you did, didn't you do like sports? Did you do like lacrosse in high school?
0: Well, so the long short of it for me was, and this is just the honest truth is, I'm the same guy as you. I'm, I've got stacks and stacks of VHSs of SNL, you know, growing up. Yeah, kids in the hall on Comedy Central and just like losing my mind. That was back when like uh, Viva Variety and the state and all this other stuff was coming out. And I'm I'm loving Mm -hmm. comedy, but it's more of like I was I enjoyed sports a lot. So I was kind of I got into theater classes to kind of be a wise ass. But then I really, really enjoyed exploring character and doing scenes. Yes. From my end, I was playing baseball at the time and junior year when I started taking classes with you. Your your comedic talent kind of blew me away, but we had other people, too, that were coming up around that time that have gone on to have success that were around mm-hmm. us. And I got so into it that I quit. I quit baseball. Uh, my oh, senior that's year. Right, baseball because yeah. all I wanted to end up. I, that's all I wanted to do then was start doing plays and be on stage and, yeah, and doing comedy and all that stuff. And that was really kind of like that time of like sort of I walked in a little bit late to the theater scene. So I don't know if that was a good thing or a bad thing, but I I got a lot out of it, you know.
1: Well, i I have a vague memory, and let me know if I'm wrong about this, but I remember I feel like I might have helped convince you to maybe audition for Lanyap, or were you gonna do that anyway? I can't remember. No,
0: you no, so th- I'm so glad that you're bringing this up because I got through that process kicking and screaming, which is looking back on it, I'm not proud of, but it's really instructive now looking forward like looking towards it because, yeah, you were doing the head writer thing. Mm-hmm. We were doing classes together. We were doing scenes. I love doing scenes with you. Yes. Beyond of mice and men, but doing comedy stuff. And I remember you telling me that like, Hey, auditions are coming up. Like you should really think about it. And another person was huge also was Brianna Giulio. Yes. And she was also like, Hey, we should audition. And I was like, ah, I don't know. And she was like, you know what, I'll audition with you. And I don't know if you remember, but we auditioned by bringing in a huge bowl of cereal and we bought gallons and gallons of milk and filled up this huge like container that you would put like Christmas decorations in. filled it up with milk and cereal. And then we got in and just played in it. And I almost <laughs> didn't go back to callbacks either. I went out to like some party at like Rachel Levy's house and, and had <laughs> drinks and I wasn't going to go to the callback cause I was scared and, and vulnerable and worried about putting myself out there. And Bree shows up at my door at like seven 30 that morning. And is like, you're coming with and like drags me out of bed and drives me to that callback audition, you know? And, and then I get it and I get a chance to like tell your jokes in front of thousands of people. And it's, still oh like my a, God. it's not like the greatest, it's not like the greatest achievement of my life, but man, it's such a special moment. I still look back on that very, very fondly.
1: Yeah, me too. Well, I remember you were, you were sort of like, like a, a breakout star because I think you had done so little theater at Naitre that it was like. I feel like he sort of took everyone by surprise when it was like, oh, wow, he's like really good at this stuff. And I remember you had some really good roles in the show. And um, yeah, I mean, for me, being the head writer, that was like completely thrilling, like a sketch comedy. Like all I ever wanted to do was basically be, you know, on SNL or, you know, like a late night show sort of. So I, I like have, having that chance to be a head writer was yeah, unbelievable. If I can
0: if I can just jump in real quick. So yeah, you're, you're mm-hmm. 18. Yeah. What was that experience like for you? I mean, I'm sure it was like joyous and elation, but what was it like seeing your written word in all of its form and its costume in front of thousands of people laughing? What was it like to finally see that happen? And for how long did you use kind of like that moment as a little bit of some fuel as you moved for, like forward in your career?
1: It was actually sort of the perfect illustration of what it's like to do com- like comedy professionally where, you have people laughing at stuff that you wrote and then there's also stuff that you wrote that people do not la- laugh at <laughs> and it's kind of all equally terrifying i mean if it, it, there's nothing to me that feels better than having like a room full of people laugh at something that you wrote yeah. um and then there's nothing that makes you feel more uh naked and terrified than than something that you thought was funny not really be very funny and i remember we had written or i, I wrote some like opening monologue for the show that where Adam Port played like a hot dog, um, you know, like the, da- the dancing hot dog that you would see before movies with like the popcorn and the soda from old movies and stuff. And I remember we, we all thought it was like funny, but then when we did it in the show, it kind of was, it sort of like bombed more or less. Like there was one joke I remember that got a really good laugh and that felt really good. But the rest of it, I was like, oh my God, I swear I thought this was funny. And that experience turns out to be exactly what doing comedy at a professional level is often like, where you're just like, oh, this thing that I thought was funny, turns out not to be this thing that I thought was maybe okay is getting big laughs like you just never know. Um, But I mean, above all else, it's just, it's so thrilling to see just something that you, an idea that you have in your head, then be transformed, you know, on stage by people who are really good at performing and put in front of lots of people Um, but you know and I I feel like I definitely rode the high of that my senior year but then you know when I got into college I auditioned for a sketch comedy group and being a freshman in the group you're kind of like back sort of at the bottom again you know and then when when I graduated from uh, college you know then I was 22 and then it's kind of like oh yeah now you're back at the bottom of another big you know playing field again so that that has sort of been the pattern In my life, and I suspect probably other people's too, is just like freshman year auditioning for Lanyap, not getting in, sophomore year, you know, like, but then by the time I'm a senior, like, oh, nice, okay, like, you know, I did it. And that's just happened to me over and over in life.
0: (laughs) You know, you get out to New York, talk a little bit about forming like, you know, Pangea 3000, because that's when we sort of reconnected again. Some years later, where you guys were this New York group, you'd come back and do Chicago Sketch Festival, and I was in my sketch group, my doing my thing and we were crossing paths. You know, how did you meet those guys through kind of that same process? Were you guys all kind of freshmen sort of banding together as you rose up the ranks?
1: Yeah, we were all we all met in our college sketch comedy group. We were various, you know, different years and stuff. But we were we basically all I, I was very lucky to go to college and be in a sketch comedy group with a bunch of. Like-minded people who also really wanted to do comedy professionally, so I feel like we probably put a lot more effort into our college sketch comedy group than most college sketch comedy groups do. Just like probably to a degree that's not uh, you know normal, but we we didn't care, we loved it, and yeah. When I graduated college, the choice for me was basically between going to New York uh, or Chicago, and if I went to New York, you know, I was talking with four of my friends from uh, our college sketch group about forming a group in new york which we didn't have a name for yet and if i went to chicago it's like maybe i could do the second city route i had a girlfriend living in chicago at the time so i was really on the fence but ultimately i thought well in new york i at least know people who i can do comedy with so i chose new york and we formed a sketch group called Pangea 3000 And, um, yeah, I guess we found, I don't know, maybe an average level of success as far as a uh, sketch comedy group goes in in New York City. You know, we were a group for six years. We did perform at some sketch festivals alongside you guys, the the cool table. Uh, (laughs) But that was the name of it, right? Yeah, you got it. Yeah. But, you know, in the meantime, I was like not doing comedy professionally. I was working in a bookstore, And then I was a caterer and I was a nude figure model and a little league umpire. Uh, I don't know if you knew all those times
0: at the same time too. Sometimes (laughs)
1: the
0: conflicts would intersect and you have to, well, that's why,
1: that's why I got fired from umpiring very quickly.
0: (laughs) You've got the big chest protector and then you do the rocking spin for the punch out and the third strike and just bare ass just shows
1: up. You got to show that ass. Yeah. Um, and then, yeah, uh, I started, um, One of the guys in Pangea 3000 was a writer at The Onion. And through him, I was able to start contributing uh, writing to The Onion. So I started writing for The Onion. I mean, I was never a staff writer, but I would just contribute headlines. And if I got lucky, I would have like, you know, one headline per week or a couple headlines per month get written up by one of the staffers into an article. But that was a dream come true, too, because I used to read The Onion. I don't know. Did you read The Onion like when we were growing up?
0: Oh, yeah, all the time. I mean, there's really nothing... It, the power of the onion for me is every once in a while, someone will just text you a headline
1: mm-hmm. and you
0: kind of sort of forget about the onion in your sphere or in your world. And then they send you this headline and it's so fucking funny. Yeah. That it kind of sort of makes your day. Like you're just laughing and looking back at it. And that's the power that every once in a while it just jumps into your life and just brings great joy. And I think, mm-hmm. um, I mean, it's, it's, it's awesome. I mean, in the fact that you can write headlines, which you're still kind of doing now a little bit on your Instagram, you're having a lot of fun with that. Uh, I really really enjoy checking (laughs) this out. Um, and so you're contributing for the onion at this point Mm -hmm. is, are you putting together writing packages for the tonight show? Or is that something that maybe isn't in your, your purview yet? I mean, how did you get to, to that arena?
1: Okay. So it's sort of another stroke of luck for me was that, um, another writer of the onion this guy mike disenso he he happened to be the first writer that they hired at late night with jimmy fallon so when when fallon was going to be taking over for conan um, which they announced in like 2008 i think they were basically looking for a whole new writing staff and they hired this young writer mike disenso who I happened to be friends with through the onion. And he also lived like two blocks away from me. And I used to go to his apartment to watch like baseball and the show Studio 60 on the Sunset Strip. I don't know if you've if you ever watched that. He and I were friends. He was a fan of Pangaea 3000. And uh, it was thrilling for me to know someone who was a TV writer. That was a huge deal um let alone a late night writer and when you're a writer at these shows you're also kind of pro- in charge of producing the sketches or the bits that you're writing which means like if there's people you need to cast you you know you you could sort of choose who you cast so mike asked me if i would help him write a sketch um, i or, or just kind of help him punch up a sketch a little bit so there was a sketch called the gadston purchase guy which if you go on youtube and look that up is still there and that's my first TV appearance ever. This was the sixth episode of Late Night with Jimmy Fallon. I was terrified. I was 24 years old. I, and he he gave me a part, you know, in the sketch. I, I like went to the studio. So
0: real quick, he, he gave you the part. He was like, hey, you're going to do this. You're going to do this.
1: Yeah. I, yeah. Well, he was like, do you want to do this? And I was like, of course, of course I do. Uh, again, I was terrified. Also, I remember they only had a certain amount of sets of cue cards for that sketch and uh i couldn't see the cue cards, so i had to memorize my four lines which doesn't sound like a big deal but like later on when i eventually became a writer and performer at the show i I was in a bunch of sketches and you pretty much always have everything on cue cards so to have to memorize your lines is like a very like rare occurrence yeah so not only was it the most terrifying moment of my life but i i couldn't see you know i like I I couldn't see anything, (laughs) but, uh, I performed that sketch and it went well. So they kept asking me back to do bit parts. And then it was through my friend, Mike, that I was able to submit a writing packet to late night with Jimmy Fallon. I did not get hired on my first one or my second or my third. In fact, my third one, not only did they not hire me, but they hired a good friend of mine, John Haskell, who he and I were in a two person sketch group called two fun men And we also did a show at the UCB Theater and um, Jimmy came to see the show, really liked it. And then a couple months later, they were, you know, choosing, they had hired three writers. They had one more open slot and it was between me and John Haskell and they chose, (laughs) they chose John. Uh, And I was happy for John, but also just jealous and devastated and angry. And then I kind of worked really hard over the next year to try to, I was then kind of just trying to do my own thing, trying to like write a solo show to hopefully like hope that SNL people would come see me. Hmm. And I was just about ready to give up on late night with Jimmy Fallon. I submitted my fourth writing packet there. I was like, I don't know. I'm like, this is kind of pathetic now. This is my fourth packet. I was still doing bit parts on the show. So I showed up one day to rehearse and jimmy um kind of interrupted me during my line in rehearsal and he goes uh oh hey I, uh i arthur I, I read your packet and i was like oh okay and he goes yeah uh it, it was great do you wanna do you wanna work here uh <laughs> so he like surprise hired me on the floor of rehearsal um <laughs> yeah it was absolutely crazy I, I somehow managed to not crap my pants and then yeah two weeks later i started as a writer at the show. So that was March of 2012. Two years later is when the show became The Tonight Show. And pretty much all the writers were were kept on for that. And so I stayed a writer there uh, until 2016. I left the show for five months to go try to work on a, a pilot for Comedy Central, which didn't end up getting picked up. And then around the time that we found out it didn't get picked up, they offered me a job as a sketch supervising writer at The Tonight Show, which meant I would sort of be Essentially the head writer of the sketch comedy side. There's like the sketch side and the mono side. Uh, the mono side just deals with the monologue jokes, and then the sketch side is pretty much everything else. So I, I was head pretty much, yeah, like sketch supervising writer for the next almost three years and then left the show in 2019. So I was at I was at I was at Fallon for about seven and a half years.
0: Oh, and it was a great call on their part, man. I mean, you <laughs> created so many Wonderful. Not just moments and jokes, but I mean, characters and recurring characters and stuff that would come back that played within that world. You were talking you were talking a little bit before about and every comedian goes through this, right? Like when you put yourself out there, you put your joke out there, you put your character out there, whatever it is. Mm -hmm. There is always that that fear of are they going to love it? Are they going to hate it? And if they hate it, what do you do with that joke or that comedy? If someone doesn't like it and do what I've always just respected the shit out of you and and your talent was man you do stuff your your comedy is done with conviction in my opinion where it comes from your place your voice and it's it's not really like it's not a fuck you thing but it's just like there's a confidence and conviction with the jokes that you tell that really brings people into your world I don't think you're trying to maybe tell a joke for everyone but eventually everyone loves that joke because it's how you (laughs) present it One, for example, is for the listeners, it's an old one, but I just, and I think this might just be yours. I don't know if it's a Tonight Show thing, but you, your vignettes of running uh, for a train, people missing a train (laughs) and sprinting. And for those of you, it sounds like a very simple premise, but A, like it's evergreen because we've all been there and Arthur plays, let's just say a thousand different kinds of characters and we all begin to realize that there's a similarity in our humanity that we all can be late for a train and if we don't catch that fucking train we're going to be in a lot of trouble for being late so you better run and sprint down the road so when you get to the the tonight show for you personally like what what did it mean if a joke didn't go well did that mean like in your head you're like i got to go back to the drawing board or would you sometimes say to yourself like look that joke didn't work maybe because the audience wasn't right or or whatever it was i still believe in what i was trying to do it just didn't work that night how would you take that on such a big stage
1: yeah that's a really good question and actually before i answered i do want to thank you for those extremely nice words that you just said that re- that really means a lot to me sincerely, it really does
0: sincerely yeah
1: um well so the tonight show had this sort of thing where and this is going to sound weird but for the most part jokes tended tended to go pretty well, like I, 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 and I, I want to also say that I certainly had stuff that bombed on the show, but um, we would do a, a rehearsal every day in front of a studio audience, and if stuff didn't really get laughs there, um, it wouldn't, it wouldn't be in the show. That was usually a rehearsal of the monologue. Mm-hmm. Um, whereas, like most of the other comedy that was done on the show is usually done with um, a guest so a lot of times the audience is just kind of really excited to see the guest in a sketch so most of the sketches sort of end up like more or less working we did do some sketches that did not work very well i remember my friend john and i wrote a sketch for will forte one time that we thought was very funny where will forte was playing jimmy's uh cousin his name was like brian dunning and when I read this, when I read the sketch in at the table with Jimmy, I was doing Will Forte. I was doing my best Will Forte impression, and I always found him very funny when he would yell. So I was kind of doing a Will Forte, you know, yelling kind of voice, you know, like, uh, you know, uh, <laughs> I can to remember like any of the jokes. Oh, just been making music on my YouTube, you know, like, and. <laughs> When Will Forte, Jimmy approved that, like, this, the sketch went really well when I read it out loud, but then when Will Forte got there, he was like, I was thinking about maybe this other sort of voice, like, he kind of tried this, like, high-pitched, sort of like this kind of high-pitched New Yorkie voice, which was, like, much different from what I had imagined, but I didn't really want to say no to someone like Will Forte because he's so funny um, and I'm not going to say that that's why the sketch didn't do well. I think there's a good chance the sketch might not have done well, even if he was doing it the way I wanted it to. But I do remember being in the studio for that and just hearing no no one really laughing. And it's both kind of terrifying, but also really uh, just funny because there's something really pathetic about trying to be funny and just not being funny. You know, like, <laughs> like the idea of me and my friend John, we're like in the studio we're like oh man i still remember writing the sketch and like coming up with these jokes and thinking oh this is so funny and then just not even hearing no laughter but hearing a couple people sort of being like <laughs> uh, <laughs> which is like somehow uh, yeah somehow that's almost like negative laughter. like it's almost like worse than zero laughs but I don't know like that joke that, that, to...
0: le- that joke made me feel less about myself <laughs> or like yeah I'm, I'm taking it oh god these people are taking this internally <laughs> this joke's yes. out of control
1: that to me though is also like part of the joy of comedy is like no matter how many times you do it you don't really actually you never know until you try something out what's going to work and it's almost like I almost thought of those late night shows as being like a baseball season or something. Like even, if even the best baseball teams lose like 60 games a season. Right. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, so a late night show, we would do like 200 episodes per year. So there's just so much, there's so much content, so much stuff all the time that it would be crazy and almost impossible to have like everything be a home run. Now the, the stuff that I, there would be things that we got on the show that we sometimes jokingly referred to as a shit bit. And sometimes we would refer to a joke or refer to a bit as a hit bit. And a shit bit would be a bit that just kind of sort of was sort of like the least common denominator kind of thing. The stuff that sort of like checked all the boxes, like, Oh yeah. moment
0: If something's in the news topically or something, let's, let's hit the thing now before it goes through the cycle or.
1: Exactly. And it's not necessarily the most original idea. It's just kind of like we sort of know the audience is going to almost laugh at this because of both knowing the reference and because of the rhythm of the joke. Um, And then a hit bit would be a bit that is genuinely inspired and that you think is funny and you know your friends will think is funny too. Those would always be the ones I would would shoot for. Like those are my favorite things. Because when you're a writer of the show, your job is basically you know, you want to get those hit bits on, you want to get on the bits that you think are really funny, but that also work with the language of the show. So it's almost like hitting the middle part of this Venn diagram where it's like on one circle is stuff you think is funny. And on the other circle is stuff that the show would conceivably air. And there's plenty of stuff in the stuff I think is funny circle that would not air. And there's plenty of stuff that would air on the show that I don't necessarily think is funny. So the goal is to like, try to get that middle part. And that's what I would go for all the time. I I didn't always hit it. I mean, 95% of what I wrote probably did not, did not make the show, but there would be times when I would get stuff on where I'm like, I'm certain this won't get on the show. This feels too esoteric. This feels like way too specific to like something that would just make me laugh. And a lot of times that would be the thing that would end up getting on the show. Cause it was like, Oh, it, it made me laugh when I was writing it. And, Therefore it's kind of surprising and making other people, you know, laugh too. So my, my, like my goal would often be to try to make Jimmy laugh. Jimmy is sort of the, I guess the ultimate like gatekeeper of like what actually gets on the show, like anything that would potentially go on the show, you would go into a meeting with him during the day, middle of the day, called the creative meeting. And he would read your script out loud in front of you, uh, which especially in your first year at the show is just completely nerve wracking. And, you know, you're like thinking, what am I, what the hell am I doing here? I don't, I, I do not belong here. Um, but, you know, if you've laughed at something, he would he pretty much always put it on. So that was kind of my goal. And then even sometimes if something made it to air and was just sort of making Jimmy laugh, but not necessarily the rest of the audience, for some reason, I didn't really mind that much. I, I'm like, well, if this is like tickling Jimmy, then like, I'm, I'm happy with this, you know?
0: And that's what's so funny and so special, I think, about comedy. And I think when people often talk about how it's this constant never ending pursuit because it's always changing and morphing. Mm -hmm. And I totally get what you're saying. We're like, I think every comedian has their small little shoebox of jokes and bits that they know that they really like that maybe the rest of the world isn't ready for yet or like, I don't know what the rest of the world will ever be able to like truly like uh, enjoy. And I do remember. From a sketch comedian's background, I love the baseball analogy because we would do sometimes we would try and write new sketches all the time. But oftentimes you're doing the same material just for a different audience and just like stand up, you know, it's kind of funny. One night, the joke absolutely crushes Mm -hmm. the next night. The audience wants to kill you because it's not funny. Mm -hmm. And how do you um, how do you resolve that, you know, which audience is correct or, you know what I mean? Or is it more about like just having that confidence of, well, you just keep going and maybe I can pay attention to the details and tweak here and there to maybe bring it a little bit closer to the middle for both audiences. But just because an audience hates it one night doesn't mean the joke's terrible. And just because the audience loves it the other night doesn't mean it's the greatest joke you've ever written.
1: That's true. There's, there are like a million variables too. And this would be the case with a Tonight Show audience. Sometimes the audience would be uh, amazing and just kind of ready to laugh at anything. And sometimes there would be that weird sort of distant feeling where you're like, it feels like, is the ceiling like 30 feet higher than it normally is? Or like, is it colder in here? Like, what's going on? Like, there are so many factors. There's just, you know, I think like what the weather is like that day might affect things, what's going on in the news and how people are generally feeling like as a whole might kind of affect things. Like a lot of times I think comedy is better in, in smaller venues. So, you know, sometimes, you know, if you have like 10 people in a 10 person venue, I kind of think that's better than having like, Fifty people in a 150 seat venue you know there's just it's more densely packed there's there's a million things there's your own timing when you're performing you know there's just like so many factors that it's almost it's kind of it's always like subjective all the time but that's also kind of the thrill of it too and you know you and I were both obsessed with SNL one of my favorite things about SNL is that sketches can bomb on the show or go really great and there's never been an era in the show's history where that hasn't been true like if you a lot of people will often refer to like a golden age of of the show any era of SNL um or any you know like live comedy show basically uh has had that thing where like a a lot of stuff just kind of doesn't really work but that's sort of the thrill of it that's kind of the that's sort of what you just kind of have to, you sort of sacrifice the security and comfort of being able to manage every and like control every single detail of it. And you're kind of trading that in for like, okay, what's going to happen in the moment. And it's like that thrill that adds to the aesthetic of the comedy. Um, so I don't know if that, I don't know if I'm getting too philosophical, but I no, I, love no, that I, stuff. I,
0: I love it, man, because honestly the, I I always find that the determination of a joke or comedy is not necessarily in that moment because it can live on and it can change over time. Like another thing, uh, throw another compliment your way that I just always enjoy your work is that, dude, you just do stuff because you want it to exist. You know what I mean? (laughs) Whether it is you uh, doing very tasteful nude photos of yourself or Uh whatever bit that you're working on. I think a lot of times people struggle in life with the concept of, whether it is funny or not or whether it deserves to see the light of day and all this other stuff but if you have confidence in just letting something exist not only will that thing exist and it can be talked about and also looked upon for years and years later and maybe it comes back around where people love it it also gets you a little bit closer to the place that i think that you want to be which is the rep the repetition mentality of trying to do comedy i just think of there's so many sketches and i could be wrong you but you probably know a little bit better about this than i would about snl but i always think of that will ferrell sketch of them sitting um and eating dinner i think it was sarah michelle geller was the host and i drive a dodge stratus sketch
1: yes as uh january 17th, 1998 musical guest poured head.
0: head <laughs> 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 and the saint was ruling the box office oh what a special time, <laughs> <The> <laughs> was a time was. um but what i remember about that sketch is and if i'm not correct it wasn't one of the lead offerings if i remember correct. it correctly it was one of the deep yeah. sketches in there and it might have even been closer to a second half i don't know if i want to say that much but what's funny about that is that week in that moment that sketch did not rise to the cream of the crop of what they felt like would be one of the top offerings for the week but now it's on will ferrell's greatest hits and I think Will Ferrell is also a really interesting cast member on SNL of a guy who's a lot of sketches that kind of got buried down the set list turned into some of his greatest moments. And I think it speaks a little bit to like, kind of like what we're talking about, where comedy, it's great when comedy hits like right off the bat and people love it. Or in our modern case, it goes viral. But I think there's a lot of things that over time can age and marinate properly. And that's why I love comedy so much, because it can come back and still exist in, and entertain in different ways.
1: I think so, too. And I also think with, with someone like Will Ferrell, or I guess, especially with a show like SNL, I think a lot of what people laugh at depends on their familiarity with the person. So that that's usually why, like, I remember that, so that sketch was in Will Ferrell's third season. Um, they did a, you know, like, if they had done that sketch, I think maybe in his fifth or sixth season, I'm sure the audience would have been even more on board from the beginning, but because they only kind of, some of them probably knew who Will Ferrell was, you know, it it's like, I think that's a huge factor too. But then by the time Will Ferrell was, you know, I, I wrote several bits for him when he was on the Tonight Show and it was all, he almost made it too easy. Like <laughs> you, you're just, I remember we did this one sketch one time where he played little Debbie, like the, you know, the, oh, that, yeah. he was like the spokesperson, the new spokes, self-proclaimed spokesperson for Liddy little Debbie snack cakes or something. And he got there to the show and he, you know, this is like, I think my first time meeting him and he was so unbelievably nice. And he was reading, he had read the script, but he was rereading it right in front of me and my friend, John, and <laughs> we had co-written the script and he would just, you know, it was just kind of very calmly looking at it. And then at one point he turns to us and he goes, um, do you, do you want me to say this line sort of more sad or or angry? What were you thinking? And we, John and I sort of looked at each other, like <laughs> we sort of were thinking like, well, I don't know, you're Will Ferrell, like you would say it however you want, you know, <laughs> but I could tell he wanted, you know, he was, he was genuinely curious, like, what is your opinion? So we're like, well, we were kind of picturing it angry, but also, I think it, you know, definitely get out there and just feel what the vibe is, you know. And and like once you saw him out there, it, you as a writer, I remember feeling so, just like joyous and kind of protected in a way. Where it's like, oh, he's he's got this taken care of, you know. Like, I have nothing to worry about. It, it, it's it's crazy to see like what what someone's what an audience's familiarity with a performer. Uh, can do on the show.
0: My jokes are in the right hands. Um, I'm not yes. <laughs> I'm not too worried about that. And that's an interesting point that you're bringing up too because back then with that particular Dodge Stratus sketch, Will yeah. Ferrell was a little bit more of an assassin where I think it was a little bit more unassuming and he would play more of the straight character and then he would do these bursts or these moments. And now, as you said, when he's on The Tonight Show, or really any show, but specifically when he's on The Tonight Show, I, me, myself, I'm on the edge of my seat being like, okay, Will Ferrell, Whenever you're ready, bring me that funnel. <laughs> you're, kind of, you're kind of sitting there in an anticipatory way. And I think it does probably change the way you digest comedy.
1: Yeah, I think so, too. And, you know, I another thing I really love about Will Ferrell, like, have you ever seen the very first sketch he did on SNL? It's it's the get the get off the shed sketch. Oh, Have you the, seen that one one?
0: That he, the one that he auditioned with, yeah, and it yeah. was another one that they dumped. That was a that was in like the second half of a show, too, right? No, no, that that they one was
1: actually that was the very first sketch after the the monologue and the commercial. Oh, wow! Um, so, so this is his very first show, and no one knew who this guy was who was yelling, you know, get off the shed. I mean, it's it, there's not even really much of a joke to the sketch. It's just a suburban father. At a barbecue in his backyard, yelling at his kids to get off the shed, and it sort of doesn't really do that. It gets some good laughs, but it it doesn't really do that great. But to me, a very inspiring thing about Will Ferrell is that he's also kind of an author, and he also would would just take chances and do something like that, where he's really asserting himself. Where kind of it's like, ultimately, if you're a comedian, you sort of have to make the choice, like, okay, do I want to kind of take the risk and do this thing? uh or do i not want to and i feel like the best comedians are people who are like well i'm alive right now i'm i'll be dead one day like let's do it you know let's like let's like this is what it's a, this is why i w- went to this is why i tried to do this in the first place so yeah will ferrell would take so many of those chances and and a lot of them didn't really go that well on the show but then you look back on it now and you're like oh this is so hilarious because now you you kind of know who he is. I I remember also once doing a, uh, or once uh, producing a sketch on The Tonight Show uh, for Dana Carvey. So Dana Carvey was, you know, I feel like most people our age were just like, thought he was just one of the funniest people on the planet. And he was doing an orchestral version of Chop and Broccoli on The Tonight Show. So I didn't have to write anything. All he did was I was just producing the sketch. But I did go up to him after rehearsal. And I said, you know, I just want to let you know, I think you're, you know, one of the funniest people on the planet. You're very inspiring. We ended up getting into like a 45 minute conversation about comedy stuff. And one really interesting thing I remember talking about was I told him, you know, I'm like, I perform on the show sometimes, but I'll get really nervous. My hand, my hands sometimes shake. Like I've get, and and this is a thing going back to high school when I would perform in improv shows and stuff, I would get like a, a tremor, you know, and and this would happen on the Tonight Show sometimes. Um, and Dana Carvey told me that when he started at Saturday Night Live, he, it, it, like, so his very first episode was the first time that they ever did the Church Lady sketch. Uh, yeah. And he had never done sketch comedy before. He had, he came from a stand-up background. All of a sudden now, he's in New York City. He's in on the eighth floor of this, you know, really big, important building in the center of, you know, the biggest city in the country and there's cameras and there's an audience and there's cue cards. And he was, he said he was like crying in his dressing room before the show. And he said that if you look at that sketch and most sketches from his first year or two on SNL, you could see his hands are like sweaty. His hands would get like sweaty when he would get nervous. Mm -hmm. And he said that what he learned was that the audience does not really hold it against you if you're nervous they don't mind if you're nervous as long as you're also confident in in what you're doing like as, as long as you're also like showing that you clearly have that like conviction or the excitement about the thing that you're you're bringing to the table so you know if you look at like old bits with Adam Sandler he's not necessarily like the most seasoned performer but there's something real about him and I think the audience often connects with that or someone like I guess maybe like Pete Davidson on, on the show in more recent years is someone who like oh yeah this isn't necessarily what I would think of as like a seasoned like actor performer, but the audience will connect with that whatever that real thing is. So even if it is nerves, you know, you could kind of use that to your benefit.
0: Let's take a quick break to talk about our brand new sponsor here on bet on Chicago balance seven. So I don't know if you guys have heard, but apparently former NBA player Lamar Odom may be returning to professional basketball in Spain soon. I was recently reading a press release about how he started taking a pH balancing alkaline supplement called balance seven. And that has helped him bounce back from his hospitalization in 2015 quote Lamar Odom. I have an enormous amount of energy, which is good for me. It's important when working out, I always need energy to level up and I couldn't agree more with Lamar. And after watching him fight Aaron Carter in July's celebrity boxing match, I think it's safe to say that Balance 7 is working for him. Now, here's the cool thing. We've got a promotion running with Balance 7 right now, where if you go to their website Balance7.com, use the code BELIEVE, B-L-E-A-V, at checkout, you'll receive a free 4-ounce bottle of My Smooth Skin with any purchase of Balance 7 products. That product retails at $13.99, so I'd say you're getting a pretty good deal right there. so what are you waiting for? Head to balance7.com. Use the code believe, BLEAV at checkout and get in on this promotion while supplies last. I know I will, and if it worked on him, it can also work for you too. Balance7.com. Now back to the pod. Well, in the, the, the three examples that you're bringing up are really interesting because those are three guys who expertly used the medium of talking into the camera to America when they mm-hmm. were presenting their comedy, which I think also allowed they say it's about like the connection or whatever, when you're looking into the camera, but I think it allowed for a little bit more of like some authenticity. Yeah. And maybe, like a little vulnerability came out of there too, because Sandler would always do that. Like, Oh shucks kind of thing, which, which Jimmy kind of did too as well. in his mm-hmm. SNL days, the kind of like, you know, oh I'm here and you know, here's the joke, <laughs> kind of, you know, you know, but I think that's endearing. And I think that's probably why it really worked for them. Uh, last, last tonight show question. And then we're going to talk a little sports. And then yes. We're, we're going to get you out of here. <laughs> most, most misunderstood uh, mis- most misunderstood thing about jimmy fallon
1: well i guess that's a really good question i think so a lot of times people will ask me you know is he is is he like that off camera too mm-hmm. um you know like i see that positive off camera too and uh i would say that the answer is no but also i think it, it would be impossible to he's a care. human He's a yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> Whoa. Isn't that crazy? Whoa. I was very um, sort of, I don't know if surprise is the right word, but a, a little bit taken aback by his his work ethic. You know, he he really uh, works very hard and and would hold uh, everyone at the show to like a high work ethic sort of standard. Um, I didn't know that about him. I knew that he was, uh, you know, when I started at the show, I knew obviously he's a really good comedian. He's a good entertainer. Um, but also as the, and I, you know, I did I don't even think I really knew at the time that as the host of a show, at least I think a lot of these shows, you're kind of the captain of the ship, you know, you're basically sort of steering it. So I think That, that was, that was sort of the most, that was the thing that I was kind of most surprised by about him. You know, he's not always in that like positive, you know, mood or anything, but he, I really enjoyed working for him and he definitely, you know, like, I I think kind of raised my love, my work ethic, because I sort of have always thought of myself as naturally a a pretty lazy person, but when you're at that show, the amount of content you have to produce is just staggering, you know? Um, (laughs) And, you know, I, I think he, he would, he would not laugh at stuff that he didn't think was funny. And he would laugh at stuff that he did think was funny. That surprised me too, is that someone who had been in that building for as long as he has, he's now been, uh, in that building for about 20 years. Um, he, he still laughs really hard at stuff, uh, if he finds it funny. And I, I would think that someone who's been around as long as he has might just be jaded and kind of, yeah, I've seen it all, but he would still laugh at stuff. So it's
0: my muck.
1: OK, yeah. this. <laughs> all right, come on. Roll come on
0: <laughs> what's this movie? what's this movie called? All right, whatever. Let's just roll with it. No, that's that's great here because um, I wanted to believe. And it sounds like that you're confirming this, that he works really hard to make his uh his version of what I think is very much like affable. um easy to hang out with. He makes hanging out look easy. If that makes any sense. Like, you know, he gives that ease of like, Hey, I'm just here. We're all having a good time, but I think he like puts a lot of work into it, which I think is actually a really underrated hard thing to do. I didn't work for him, but I did a couple of bits for Corden over the years. Oh really? And to his credit, Mm -hmm. I've seen the guy walk in, you know, doing, doing all the rehearsals and stuff. And they do a lot of songs with him and Reggie Watts. I've seen him Mm -hmm. and Reggie Get on the same page with a song, um, whether it is like trying to figure out what key it's going to be in, how to change it, what to do. Reggie's going to do this little bit here and just kind of watching them work. You're like, oh, man, these are these these are professionals at work. here, just cutting through the whole deal and not even really running it through once just being like this part. And then, oh, yeah, we're going to shorten this. Oh, yeah, I'm going to do that. It's going to be in this key. OK. And then you watch them do it. And it's like flawless. And you're like, OK, like this is. This is impressive to watch I, I really enjoyed you know sitting in on that stuff
1: oh that stuff fascinates me i, I love i love tinkering with a bit i love cutting stuff i love trying to li- like punch up a joke a little bit i i love like the math of a sketch um and the producing of a sketch and trying to be like okay where does this part fit in rhythmically what do we need to do to make it work <clears throat> like kind of the science of it is really fun and then when you see someone like jimmy who has, you know, he was at SNL for six years. So he is so used to last minute changes. Yeah. Um, you know, I would go up to him in the dressing room before the show and just say, you know, we move this line here or, you know, this joke is going to be, you know, like just we, we put the word the instead of uh, or so it'll be on the cue card. And he's just like, OK, got it. Gotcha. You know, and then he goes out there and he's used to that. So the technical proficiency. um. Is incredible. It's almost like its own form of sports, Joey. <laughs> right
0: here at Bet on Chicago, brought to you by betonline.ag and balanced 7pH supplements. Uh, yeah, let's talk some sports real quick before we get you out of here. Um, you got to tell the good people about your affection for the man, the myth, the legend, Laz Diaz, the baseball umpire. How did that come about? I know that it's been on, it's gone through quite a journey. So maybe you can yes. also catch me up as well as maybe where you are with all good old Laz these days.
1: Yeah. Well, okay. So I, I started a Facebook fan club in 2008 called the Laz Diaz fan club. Um, it's a fan club for major league umpire Laz Diaz who has been in the league for 22 years. Um, he's great. I saw him, I, I went to Pittsburgh and, and I saw him, uh, be the third base umpire for a Pirates Astros game and as the third base ump you don't really get too much action during the game so I think in between innings and stuff he would like go up and be talking to fans and like I think he you know got a foul ball once and sort of tossed it to a kid who wasn't obnoxiously screaming for it like he seemed genuinely nice from far away and I thought oh it'll be kind of funny to start a fan club for an ump uh, then, about a month later, I got a Facebook message from him saying, like, his sister told him about the group. <laughs> and he was like, You know, I'm very flattered, but why me? And, you know, I, <laughs> I, I, I told him, I'm like, I, I watched you umpire game and I thought you were great. And we became Laz, friends. As
0: you humble son of a bitch, don't even start with me.
1: <laughs> you know why. So- Ever since then, he's, he'll get me, you know, tickets to like a Mets or Yankees game when he's, you know, here in New York. And then we'll get, we'll grab a beer at a bar that unfortunately closed down during the pandemic called Foley's, but it was sort of the bar where like, you know, umps would hang out after the game, you know? (laughs) So I like to call it an umpire hangout bar, but that's, that definitely isn't what the bar is, you know? Um, but anyway, uh, La- I'm no longer on Facebook. I got off of it about a year ago, but Laz and I do remain friends. And in fact, earlier earlier today we um, Marco Polo'd each other. Uh, do you know that at Marco Polo, have you heard of uh, it? I
0: do a lot of connecting with uh, my sister who lives in Madison with her two little kids. It's a great way okay. to, to send quick photos and, and have a quick conversation with the kids that way, yeah.
1: Yeah, exactly. Or have a quick conversation with Laz it's Diaz Laz. that way. Give and your, I think I'll be, Raz I think Laz- I'll be seeing bit. him Yeah, Raz Laz. I think I'll be seeing him uh, this weekend. And, uh, you know, it's always a debate about whether I should bring a sign to the game saying I'm a proud lesbian, Um, but I'll probably not do that. It just sort of feels like something that maybe doesn't fly quite a, quite like it would used to, but we'll probably get a probably get a drink after the game or something. But uh, he's I, Hold on, I, I yeah. can't
0: I can't play Lenny in a play anymore, and you probably can't make that time. <laughs> That's time, time, Times change, man. We and we accept it and we move on.
1: Yeah, absolutely. um yeah no it's it's so funny uh years ago i was in this movie that was written and directed by this guy rob burnett who is an executive producer at letterman so i was i i ended up being a guest on letterman to promote the movie which was another insane experience so most of the interview with letterman i talked about umpiring and, and i talked about las diaz and i mentioned you know i talked about being the president of the last diaz fan club Anyway, that night, Laz was in Chicago, and he had just finished doing a Sox game, and he's in the locker room after the game, and another umpire has Letterman on, like, TV there, and it happens to be my interview, and the the ump is watching me talk about Laz Diaz, and he looks to Laz, and he goes, Laz, this guy on Letterman is talking about you, and Laz looks up at the TV, and he goes, oh yeah, that's the president of my fan club, and they go, what? president you have a fan club why does a major league umpire have a fan club?
0: the <laughs> west stormed out of the room uh, in
1: jealousy
0: <laughs> in rage and jealousy um so wait arthur you grew up you grew up an umpire as did i uh if there, yes. was a, if there was a multiverse which as marvel is telling us right now there definitely is um in one of those multiverses are you are you a baseball umpire would that have been a vocation that you might have actually seriously considered
1: I actually think it would be because I think it's one of only about two or three things that I can do aside from comedy writing. I'm really not that good at very many things. Um, you still good with your um, arms though. Just so. Yeah. <laughs> Safe. Yeah. I was really, I really loved umpiring. So I, I could totally see a universe where I would be an umpire and I'm just fascinated by them. I, I find it really interesting that they're the only people who are on the baseball field for the entire game They sort of have to remain stoic, but have this like perfect judgment. No one ever roots for an umpire, you know, like the, like if you're doing your job right as an umpire, you're not getting any accolades. You're just not getting booed, you know? So you're either receiving a non-reaction or you're getting booed. And that gives me sympathy for umpires.
0: Yeah. That's an interesting call. I don't know the name Angel Hernandez for anything good. You know what I mean? Right. It's It's the... the scene not heard thing of the baseball umpires, which is a try, tries to be the move. Give us one idea that you would want to change that. You'd want to put into the game of baseball to change the game of baseball. That probably 1000% would be
1: rejected. Okay. So, so this is, this is actually insane that you asked this question because, uh, several years ago I saw a game courtesy of Laz Diaz. I went to Foley's with him afterwards. I got a drink with him. And I propose directly. I just,
0: I'm just imagining you walk in and everyone, all the umpires turn around, like the hockey guys, football guys, they all go, Arthur! And you go, hey guys, <laughs> and you sit down. Okay, I'm sorry. I got I got this.
1: <laughs> yeah, I'm like the norm from cheers, you know. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> what are you up to, Arthur? Oh, about 195. Um, yeah, it was it was amazing. It was uh I I went up to Laz and I told him an idea that I had for major league baseball that I had been giving genuine thought to. And it's an idea that I still stand by today, which I think would help the popularity of baseball. Basically what it is, is this one game every day of the season. You you don't know like which game it's going to be something funny happens. And like, so this would be something sort of planned and intentional. So I'll give you a couple of examples. One is that let's say a player gets hit by a pitch, right? Batter gets hit by a pitch. He charges the mound, but instead of stopping at the mound, he runs past the mound into center field. He hops over the fence and then you, over the speakers, you hear like kind of a car starting sound effect and like, you know, driving away like that to me would be like, just, you know, a funny thing. Like I think everyone in the stadium would be like, Oh, that's funny. And then I think that would get like news coverage that night. And then as a fan, you'd want to be like, well, which, which game is going to have the funny thing in it? And what's it going to be um, like another example is like, let's say the manager goes out to make a pitching change, but wait, what, what's this? He, he forgot to wear his pants, you know? So he just has his like boxers on and they're those boxers with like the hearts on them. Like that would be another funny thing. So just it's like, it's
0: I very WWF too. Where now I'm thinking <laughs> about, where like, if the pitching coach walks out without his pants on the jumbotron video comes out and it's like the rival coach being like, I got your pants. And like, if you want <laughs> to your pants back, you're going to come down to this, like this corner street, six o'clock tonight and retrieve them, you know, like do that whole, like,
1: yeah, make it a spectacle. So I basically, I mean, I love that too. So I, I basically pitched that to, to, L- to Laz no pun intended. And I said, uh, you know, what do you think? Like I, I gave him a few examples. I was like, what do you think? And he just looks me right in the eye and he just goes, um, he's like, I think that's the most disrespectful thing about like I've ever heard the most disrespectful thing towards baseball, like that would never happen. Baseball, you know, it's not a joke, you know? And it's, it's still to this day, the only time that there's ever been a moment of weirdness between us, you know, everything else has been very positive. Like, Oh, it's so good to see you. What are you up to? Like, Oh, I'm married now. Oh, that's so cool. This was a moment where it's like, huh, I think we're both, I think we both feel weird right now. You know, <laughs>
0: step between, you step between the lines. That was, that, that's the problem. That was the problem right there. Now,
1: I think he is... thought I was like insulting, you know, him in the game, basically. Oh know? no!
0: I think this is like amazing. We're like, if, um, if a pitcher was on the mound i mean we should do this stuff all the time and like his yeah. wife wanted to surprise him and propose or his girlfriend wanted to surprise him and propose get her in the baseball umpire enrico palazzo her you know what i mean and <laughs> after one pitch like do the whole thing and like have a moment um another one i wanted to i wanted to bring up maybe not changing the game itself but i know that you've done this mm-hmm. i'm a huge advocate for it I think in the next five years, eight years, whatever you want to call it, it's going to be real. Alternatives oh, sports yeah. commentary. And I think you've, you've done this before, right? Where you've done a play by play of a game. I think, was it a Mets game? Am I getting that right? Um, what what, what I, did you guys do?
1: I think, I, I think I've done this twice. I know I did my friend Ben and I did one of the world series games between the Cubs and the Indians. And I remember it was a game the Cubs lost. So it was either game four or five, I think. And we did uh i think when maybe the cubs were playing the mets in the playoffs like uh, i think the previous year yeah 11. exactly so I, yeah so we did we did one of those games too so yeah we we did and that was like a dream of mine just to like you know call like call a baseball game well,
0: and so and so hear me out man i mean a talk about the that experience and did you enjoy it but b i Can't understand for the life of me I know that there's all sorts of licensing issues and all everything else but let's be honest you can still do play by play Mm -hmm. not necessarily show the images of the game I'm just trying to wrap my head around we're entering in this world of so many choices everything has a version on itself every TV show has a recap of said episode of said thing over and over and over again so why isn't it that when I put on a baseball game if for whatever reason I don't want to listen to the play-by-play on the TV, why don't I have five or six other options of different versions of commentary? I, I just can't understand why that can't be a thing. And I think it's coming around to it. Like the NBA started doing it where they're doing this now, this player's lounge where five players, ex-players just sit around and talk and do play, play-by-play for the game. Oh, wow. And it's it's fine. It's, it's fine. They're working uh-huh. through all the kinks and stuff, but – I just don't get why if I want something, if I want my commentary to be funny, I can go over there to that. If I want my commentary to be loaded with stats and analytics and history or whatever, I can go over and I can do that. And if I want the regular call, I can have that too. Why can't we have more options on the menu when it comes to how we digest our sports, our sports, live sports?
1: That's a great question. And I think, I mean, I completely agree with you to be totally honest with you. It's not even something I had given much thought to, even though I have, have done it before, you know, I've done this before myself. I think it's a really great idea. I remember years ago, I I remember like back in the eighties. I mean, I don't actually, I don't remember this, but I remember hearing about this. Apparently they broadcast a, a Yankees game or several Yankees games Without any uh, commentary at all, so it's just kind of like the natural sounds of the ballpark or something. Okay. Um, I know about this because they referenced it in a in an SNL bit on Weekend Update, but it was clear that it was it was like something the audience recognized. Um, that seems like a really interesting thing to me too. Like not even just having the game on mute, but just hearing like the sounds of the ballpark, but when you're at home. I don't know. I I feel like there should be, you know, any options for doing commentary. Um, You know, it's, and it's certainly, there certainly should be the option of just like people who aren't professional broadcasters doing it because that's usually very endearing. I mean, that was, that was the thing with Harry Carey, right? It's like, he didn't really, You know he's he was very good at at, as a broadcaster but he didn't really have that you know that sort of typical announcer boy you know two balls and one strike like i remember one time stats
0: driven either
1: (laughs) no he was not yeah he would and nor was he good at like you know pronouncing names or anything you know he was was kind of bad in a lot of ways like i remember one time (laughs) i remember one time getting home from a game from school and it was like the eighth inning of a day game and it wasn't even close, and this was right around the time that uh, that Ellen DeGeneres had just come out, and this was like a huge national news story. Um, this was like 97, I think, like Harry Carey's last sec- – I think his last season as a Cubs announcer, and he was just saying anything at this point. So I remember like, I fell asleep, I took a short nap, and I wake up, and I just hear, for some reason, Harry Carey and Steve Stone – talking about this Ellen thing because it's the eighth inning and they need something to talk about and all I remember Harry saying is he just goes well Steve if a lesbian is a person who likes women then I'm a lesbian <laughs> and I was like I will never hear Joe Buck say anything even approaching that like this is hilarious <laughs> like this is a crazy man <laughs> <laughs> That would be the other funniest thing is Harry Carey would just be talking about some like insane thing. Like I there I have some old DVD of like a Cubs game. I bought some box set of like the best Cubs games in history. Yeah. And there's this one game. The only reason they like on there is Andre Dawson hit three home runs, but the Cubs still lose the game five to four. Like it's not really that good of a game, but uh, Johnny Cash's niece, Arlene Cash, was supposed to sing the national anthem for that game but she she ended up backing out and you kind of hear harry you know harry Carey is like you know arlene cash backed out of you know she said she had a case of laryngitis but you know i'll I'll tell you what i really think was going on two balls one strike on the batter you know (laughs) he's like he's like, I think she just didn't, you know, she's not really much of a singer. She didn't want to embarrass herself. She'll be up here in the eighth inning. We're going to interview her ground ball to the shortstop. Like (laughs) just was like crazy, man. And then like, she's, uh, she's interviewed in the eighth inning or, or, you know, (laughs) later in the game and Harry just like confronts her about whatever his theory was. And she's like, no, I actually, my voice is sort of a little bit off off today, he's like, We're shit. all agreed. I do agree to disagree. Yeah, <laughs> anyway, that's forget. a long way of me saying I agree with you that there should absolutely be alternative, alternative forms of commentary.
0: It. I mean, yeah. Yeah, he would have these musings too. Where I just remember he'd be like, Hey, Steve, look at this. If you say Sammy Sosa's name backwards, it's ASOS EMAS. <laughs> <laughs>
1: <laughs> I remember from the name Mark Redzalanek, he was like, gradzulu- That is that name's not even spelled backwards. That's spelled sideways. <laughs> and you're just like, I feel so like lucky and blessed. That was the most amazing thing is we grew up in a time when a crazy old man was the announcer for the Cubs. And real quick, how do you man. feel
0: about your Cubs, about the Cubs right now?
1: Oh my gosh. It's, it's tough. It's it's, it's so, they're so bad right now. Um, and I have to say there's something kind of refreshing about it. I like, it obviously is give like, me that well, zag.
0: give me that zag right now. So,
1: so I love, I love the Cubs. I'm a lifelong Cubs fan. I was thrilled when they won the world series. I think there's, I think we, the Cubs fans were missing some serious losing for a long time. Like it's been a long time since the Cubs were as bad as they are now. Mm-hmm. And that is one of the things that, has made cubs fans into cubs fans is just like lots and lots of losing like any any cubs fan and i think like the difference to me i feel like the difference to me between mets fans and cubs fans and i feel like mets fans are a little bit angrier or more bothered by the fact that they're losers whereas like cubs fans that's always just been kind of part of the dna and there's almost sort of more of a stoicism in it you know yeah so i i'm like okay the cubs are really bad right now that means that we can only go up from here. And in the meantime, let's like enjoy this and see like how many games in a row they could lose. Like maybe it'll be like a rookie of the year kind of thing, you know?
0: Truly. I mean, they're definitely back to a baseline and you're bringing up a great point that now is the point of, it's a really kind of fun place as a fan where the Ascension back to greatness is a really fun journey, you know, going from yeah. being ragtag and bad and then, Hopefully a summer or two from now they're playing important games in October August and September and you're like oh man this is great we're back we're back in it the only part that really is hurtful and really really pains me right now and I had to kind of take a sabbatical from watching them for about a week just because it was really bad was I just some of these World Series heroes I really thought we were going to do the thing where you know Rizzo KB Bryant uh, you know Baez, at least Rizzo. We're going to be the kind of the guys that like we're going to be on the team until, you know what I mean? Until they were 45, you know, literally like at the point where Rizzo is at the end of his career and they're like Rizzo coming into the on deck circle and his nurse is detaching the IV from his <laughs> arm. And you know what I mean? And like the chiropractor is straightening his back and we would wheelchair these guys out, but they would be lifelong Cubs. Yes. And, and that that's that part, I guess, um I guess that part's tough I mean, we grew up with Dawson in Sandberg. And these were our kind of new version of those dudes. And I just didn't want to see them go. And they left. Yeah, the
1: no, that's, that's, how I, I, that's exactly how I felt too. I was, I really thought this Cubs team was like such a fun team to watch. I mean, the world series team was amazing. Uh, you know, and, and then just like guys, like, like, I think Contreras is a lot of fun to watch. Like, yeah. Having Baez, Rizzo's great, like all on the same team even someone like Kyle Hendricks, who's like, you, you know, he's very serious. He reminds me of like Ryan Gosling from Drive or something just like head down, just like getting the job done, you know, like qu- kind of just like quiet assassin, you know, like I I love that team and it is really sad to see them go. And now, you know, there's all these I was looking at the roster today in preparation for this uh, podcast, and I, I honestly recognize like a third of the names or something.
0: It's it's crazy. Um I, I spend a lot of time on this part uh, on the sports part now in my life as I'm doing this podcast all the time and talking to people and professionals and stuff. And I'll be honest, some of these dudes was kind of like a major league uh, dudes in the diner moment of like, who the fuck are these guys? Like, I don't yeah. know. And all of them are, what is kind of interesting about them is they're all kind of like they're 30, you know, and most of these dudes are like 30, 31. So these aren't like young. Oh, up-stars. wow.
1: I didn't know that.
0: So the weird story about that real quick is that, so a guy like Patrick Wisdom, yes, 18 home runs right now, we're all kind of like, where did he come from? He's 30 years old. So what happened was, and this is weird silver lining and just a terrible, awful time and era of because of the pandemic, a lot of the guys from AAA, not just AAA, but Double A and single A, they had to create these taxi squads and they had to create these huge lists of people because they couldn't have a minor league season. And if anyone on a major league team got COVID, they couldn't play in the game. So okay. what ended up happening was they put all these dudes together. So Patrick wisdom, whether he did anything or not, got kind of promoted. And so when you've got these taxi squad guys, Patrick wisdom now is facing AAA and fringe major league pitching on the side fields training during last year's 60 game season. And he's working with major league coaches. So out of nowhere, a guy who was maybe kind of struggling a little bit all of a sudden got this, this really like professional upgrade, not just in terms of the talent that he was facing but the coaching and the video that he was getting. And he said that it changed his life. And he's up wow. here now succeeding at 30 years old because he got the opportunities to get his hands on some of the assets and amenities that the professional teams get just cause he didn't get that high up. And now like the team's kind of loaded with like 29, 30, 31 year olds you know, maybe getting a bite at the apple. And I just, I found that to be a really interesting story of now he's finding success because of that opportunity. It was just, it worked out for him. I hope he has a great career, but you know, who knows?
1: Yeah, that's fascinating. And it makes you wonder how many, um, you know, minor leaguers out there, like would, would play really well at the major league level if they were just in the major leagues. Um That's, that is so interesting to me, that kind of stuff. I mean, Laz, Laz Diaz would not have been a major league umpire if there wasn't I think an umpire strike in like 99 or something like that. And he was essentially like oh. called up as an umpire and filled, you know, the role. So, you know, like, so it it is kind of interesting when you see that sort of thing happen and you just see someone like assert themselves. I had no clue that Patrick wisdom was like 30 years old. I, I, he's like one of the only names who I, one of the only guys on the team who seems to be doing decently right now. Right.
0: Yeah, he's doing well. I mean, to be honest, I love making fun of Frank, Sch- Frank Schwindel because it's the Schwindel, Sch- yeah, the Schwindy City <laughs> now on the north side.
1: But no, he's uh-huh. playing.
0: He's playing pretty well right now. And what they're trying to do is they're trying to take guys like Keegan Thompson and Justin Steele, some of these younger dudes who are not thirty; they're like twenty four, twenty five. And they're trying mm-hmm. to give them an extended look to see can these be cheap rotation pieces moving forward. So we're not paying Buku Bucks for a Tyler Chatwood and maybe we can kind of build a young, homegrown rotation and then spend money in other ways and kind of try and fill out the roster that way. So, I mean, it's something to keep an eye on. I mean, definitely something where I think they want to lose probably as many games as possible. And then I think this winter, I think you're going to hear the the drumbeat uh, to spend a ton of money. And that's not always the best way to go. You know, I don't know. I hope they bring back a guy like Rizzo, but uncharted territory. Have you been down in New Wrigleyville? Have you been back to Chicago to see some of the new uh set up amenities in Wrigleyville
1: yes so actually do you remember from our advisory Dustin Lasky of course (laughs) yeah everyone remembers Dustin so I never hung I never hung out with him until 2016 when I just kind of randomly decided to invite him to a Cubs game (laughs) and so he and I we, we went to a game it was the first time we ever hung out and then three years later 2019 I asked if he wanted to go to another Cubs game and he said yes so I think I hope I'm hoping to establish a pattern of every three years going to a Cubs game with Dustin Lasky. Um, and yeah, I, w- I I did go to the new Wrigley state, you know, the new Wrigley field and it's, you know, it's, it's good. It's, you know, I mean, my favorite version of Wrigley will probably always be, you know, the closest version to the original 1914, 1914, right. Ballpark. Mm-hmm. Um, that I kind of remember from when I was a kid. Like, so there's no jumbotron there. There's no, you know, it's smaller. It's just like, I don't know. I sort of romanticized that like tiny sort of like dingy stadium, but you know, it's, it's such a beautiful field. Yeah.
0: The 1914 Chipotle was way better back in the day. I made Jim. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I was down there a couple of months ago and it's different. I, you know, this is one of those things where like, I don't, like the change, but I can embrace and accept the change at the same yeah. time where I think in the long run, this is going to be positive and helpful, not just for the Cubs, but hopefully for little kids who get a chance to play catch people from out of town. that get to stay at the hotel. And you know, I think it's going to give people more access to just being around the ballpark, even though I'm completely in agreement with you. I would rather walk across the street to McDonald's uh, while someone is puking right behind the merch stand And, uh, you know, it's sticky and it's weird and it's hot. Sticky, yeah. You almost die trying to cross the street from a car hitting you. And Uh,
1: (laughs) I, I I love that Wrigley Field. I remember when I was like eight years old or nine years old, I went to a game and this player on the Astros, Steve Finley, hit a foul ball and it was coming right towards me. And I brought my mitt to the game and I reached out and I did not catch the ball, but the person sitting next to me did catch the ball. And I then got booed by like at least a dozen Cubs fans who were like, Why didn't you catch it? Like, I love that Wrigley Field. I kind of feel like maybe that wouldn't happen anymore, but like, I kind of miss those like fucking dirty, like grimy Wrigley Field games, you know?
0: <laughs> yeah, you walk in, you're hopeful, but you know you're going to be pissed. So you prepare yourself. <laughs> yeah. For sixth inning, you're yeah. pissed. And you you're walk pissed. <laughs> yeah.
1: Like the best player on the field is like Steve Bouchel. And you're like, What? Like, Dude, Why am know. I here? <laughs> you're like, man, this doesn't. Should I have come to this game? And you're like, no, I love the, I, I love oh, the Cubs.
0: We gave Jeff Blauser big money, buddy. I think we're gonna be
1: okay. <laughs> I could do this all day. By the way, just name old Cubs.
0: Oh man, those those Cubs teams, um, those mid Cubs teams that were just kind of worthless, and and they weren't terrible, but they were just under 500. You know, like yeah, like we're talking the Brian McCray, yeah.
1: Turk Wendell,
0: Turk Wendell teams and stuff like that. Those are the teams that I created cubby math for cubby math is when you're not realistically in the mix for anything because you have to do math to figure out how to actually put yourself in the mix. So it would be like (laughs) September cubby math is your seven and a half games back. You're not realistically in it. But if you start doing cubby math, like Goodwill Hunting style, you start uh-huh. being like, okay, well, if the Reds lose three right here, okay, wait a second, the Pirates play the Mets next week. So let's just say they split that, and the Cubs win all of their games. Now we're talking, you know, and you kind of like work yourself into that, like, algorithm.
1: I've um, totally done that. I've totally done cubby math.
0: Um, Arthur Meyer, man, such a pleasure. Great to see you, man. It's been a long time. I love the fact that we've known each other for coming up on 20 years now. And I do love the fact that our our circles have have passed uh, several times over these coming years. Whether it was at Chicago, Chicago Sketch Fest with Pangaea Three Thousand, and uh, just watching all of your stuff over the years, and now getting to reconnect with you again, it's really cool, man. It's great to see you. You um,
1: too, and you've always been just such a like extremely wonderful, hilarious, and uh, kind human being. I'm very happy to be friends with you.
0: Oh, thank you so much, man. Um, yeah, I promise to keep trying to do better each time and <laughs> keep up that good work man um before we go real quick uh throw the listeners out some socials uh twitter instagram any way that people can follow some of the content that you're putting out because you're still you're putting out funny stuff on the daily man so people should definitely check out uh,
1: yeah well i'm on instagram at arthur meyer 13 that's currently the only social media account i'm on now but i just finally after years made a website which is just Arthur-Meyer.com. So you go to that, and that's like uh, you could find pretty much any any old sketch I did on Fallon, or performed in, or wrote, or you know anything like that. Any all that's on the website.
0: Yeah, and there are hundreds of them for you guys to check out. So you definitely should do that too as well. And also, if you get a chance, go on the Facebook or maybe check out Laz Diaz Fan Club. Um, there's always room. There's room in the bandwagon at any time to hop on there. <laughs> um, Arthur, man, great to talk to you, dude. Um, always wishing you well, always rooting for you, and maybe we'll do it again sometime.
1: Thank you, Joey. This is great.
0: Today's episode of Bet on Chicago with Joey Christopoulos is brought to you by BetOnline.ag and Balance 7 pH Supplement. Make sure you check out both those wonderful products right now. And remember, BetOnline.ag gives you a 50% welcome bonus on your first deposit. That's pretty awesome. Thank you so much for checking out this pod. we got tons of more content coming the rest of the week. Talking a lot of bears here on this pod too as well. Until then, be well, be safe, please be good to each other, and remember when in doubt, always Bet on Chicago.